0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. Today's episode features two passionate oncologists discussing randomized control trials, real-world evidence, and really the or data and the Boston trial in refractory multiple myeloma or relapsed multiple myeloma as, you know, as, a, as an example of this larger dialogue. Dr. Aaron Goodman from UCSD and Dr. Jayton Shah, who is currently Chief Medical Officer at Karyopharm Cario and who was previously a, at MD Anderson Cancer Center. The dialogue really centers into how can we really look at some of the studies that we have, FDA drug approvals. Clearly, there are some shortcomings, there are pluses, there are minuses. At the end of the day, we realize that science is imperfect. Despite imperfect science, at the end of the day, we need to find ways to help patients. And the discussion is going to center, what does helping patients mean? How do we really execute on this? So I really hope that you enjoy this vital discussion and viable dialogue between these two passionate oncologists. Now, has been on Twitter for a couple of years, but has been really a rising star on Twitter recently. And we'll talk about that as well. And we'll talk about Jayton, uh, transition uh, career transition from MD Anderson to industry. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. So before I air the episode, I'd like to, you to um, find the show on all podcast outlets and uh, make sure you uh, write a review, subscribe, and refer a colleague, give the show, the number of stars you believe the show deserves. Without further ado, Drs. Aaron Goodman and Jayton Shah on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right. Well, it's really my pleasure to uh, host two phenomenal oncologists and vocal oncologists on the Healthcare Unfiltered uh, today. We are going to be talking about real-world evidence, randomized control trials, FDA regulation, just broad topics. And we're going to really eventually talk about the how all of this applies into uh, selenexor as a myeloma drug that was approved a while back for refractory myeloma, and uh, you know there's obviously some shortcomings, some pluses, minuses to to the trials, and and I think we had you know the concerns that were brought up by. Uh, various oncologists uh, would like to address. And for this, I've actually invited Dr. Aaron Goodman, who will introduce himself in a little bit, who has been, I don't want to say a Twitter rising star because you know this means he's too young because Aaron is very old. But really, I mean, I, I think he's, he's bringing a lot of um, interesting ideas and I think provocative thoughts. And I always like that. And I'm also very happy to have Dr. Jayton Shah who is the chief medical officer of Cario Farm, uh, who uh, also led the uh, Selenexor trial, and to talk about this, but also really more broadly to talk about in his role, how does he navigate the science and, and the regulatory process? So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, Aaron, maybe introduce yourself a little bit uh, as to uh, where you work, what you do day in and day out, and and. You know, just maybe outside of patient care, what's your interest in general, research-wise, or whatever it is that interests you from a research perspective?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I've looked forward to talking on this podcast. Um, So um, I work at the Mm -hmm. University of California, San Diego at the Moores Cancer Center. I'm in my fourth year uh, as an assistant professor. Uh, I'm in the division of blood and marrow transplant. So um, I basically consider myself a a malignant hematologist. I'm no expert in any particular. Uh, hematologic malignancy. I wouldn't claim myself to be one. I actually treat every uh, blood cancer, uh, which is unique to our center. We, we don't sub-specialize. I treat all blood cancers, but CLL. We have a dedicated group. Uh, and I treat uh, patients from diagnosis of their hematologic malignancy through relapse. And if they need a stem cell transplant, uh, autologous or allogeneic transplant, uh, I perform the transplant. So kind of everything. And um I'm very, I'm clinically heavy. I'm more of a clinician uh, than a, a diehard researcher, although I do have research interests. Uh, clinically, we do about 12 to 14 weeks a year of inpatient transplant, um, where we manage these patients, uh, uh, transplant or not, and cellular therapies. And then I have three days of clinical weeks. So I'm, I'm pretty busy clinically. As far as researcher, uh, research interests, um, I'm an investigator on a, on a few uh, industry-sponsored trials. Uh, my interests uh, are mainly in cellular therapeutics is you know i think they're cool i think most of us uh, think they're cool so i'm involved a lot of that and then recently really through twitter uh, i've become more interested in maybe some of the stuff that we'll talk about today as far as uh, drug pricing health policy and where uh, certain drugs fit into our treatment guidelines and should we or should we not be using them
0: thanks aaron and uh jayton a little bit about you and also specifically you know when you did the transition how did this come about and um, You know, I mean, do you do any patient care currently and, you know, do do you miss it? Just uh, tell us a little bit how you end up where you are. Absolutely.
2: Uh, So first of all, thanks so much uh, really for the opportunity to to, uh, join you on this podcast today and this opportunity and this uh, discussion. I think at the end of the day, these discussions are important across really anything and everything we do. So I'm looking forward to a great discussion this evening. For myself, I'm a trained oncologist, uh, did my oncology training at University of Alabama in Birmingham. And then spent uh, really the the next nine years of my life at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, in the Department of Lymphoma and Myeloma, seeing really exclusively myeloma patients, uh, just like Aaron, uh, three, three and a half days a week, and also doing clinical research as well. So built uh, and uh, led the clinical and translational research group at MD Anderson um, and did a number of really, uh, really focused on early drug development at MD Anderson. So we did, you know, our phase one studies um, up to phase three studies a number of investigator sponsored studies, as well as industry sponsored studies and cooperative group studies. And did that for about 10 years. And you know, I think was a really exciting time building a program and doing a lot of this early clinical research uh, and seeing patients. And then uh, several years ago, you know, I think it was um, kind of hit a point in my career where I wanted to assess what I was doing next ultimately with this transition to industry and really trying to determine what do I do next. I was you know, it was young enough I could take some risks. And so do I make this leap to industry or do I continue with what I'm doing? And so I made this transition to industry at that point in time um, for a couple of re- uh, specific reasons for why I carry a farm, but made this transition because I wanted to really challenge myself, push myself and really learn um, another aspect of where I can make a contribution maybe to a wider group of patients um, beyond what we're doing in Houston, Texas. Um, So that was really kind of some of the reasons at that point in time I wanted to really challenge myself. I'd done quite a bit at MD Anderson, quite a bit more to be done. And so I really wanted to take on some risks and take on that challenge. And I think that, do I miss clinical medicine? Sure. I mean, I think uh, any physician um, who's been doing this for as long as we have always misses medicine, misses patients. This is what drives us every single day and still drives me to this very day. And I would say, even this past week, I had a couple of emails from my patients who all have my email and cell phone still reaching out to me over the holidays, checking in. So this is really continues for the last three years. so. Of course, I think that still is a part of who I am, will always be a part of who I am, drives what I do every single day to improve outcomes for patients, period. Um, so great. this just gives me a platform to do that, in a, I think, on a more global scale.
0: That's great. So let, let's start by talking, I mean, I think the, you know, over the past um, many years we we've always been we we all want to make sure that we get drugs to patients in oncology and non-oncology right cardiology i mean other diseases as well and i think we were all trained that randomized control trials are the standard approach to approve a new drug or not to approve to 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 change stand of care or to you know to be able to bring a new drug to market so Aaron, one of the things that I struggle with, and I'm curious about your thoughts, is a lot of times these randomized controlled trials, they are highly selected. I mean, we all know, I mean, these patients have to have very adequate, all kinds of things in terms of marrow function, liver function, kidney function. They're often younger. Um, they're often Caucasians. Um, they often had good psychosocial support. They can go to the center where there are trials and so forth. And then a drug gets approved and it gets applied to everybody else that has not, does not represent these patients that um, were on trials. And we know less than 10% of U.S. adult patients get enrolled on cancer clinical trials. You're very heavy clinicians. How do you, how do you marry these together? Like, how do you take then data from randomized controlled trials that don't always apply to patients that you see day in and day out and apply it to the patients that you see in clinic?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a tough question that, uh, you know, I struggle with just about almost every day. And I think, you know, there's not one answer for that for everything. It really matters kind of what clinical situation I'm, I'm in. You know, if I'm in a newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, who's reasonably fit and gonna be treated with curative intent therapy, then I'm gonna to want to use something that I think has pretty robust data, uh, not just something that I think might be better. Um, and, and And as I'll probably repeat myself a few times, we tend to think in a lot of parts of oncology that more therapy uh, is better. You know, We really can't say that without randomized studies. And uh, we always know that adding, I think just about always adding more therapy will be more toxic. We know that for sure without running the randomized trial. Um, so in the newly diagnosed setting in you know, you know, a reasonably fit person, I, 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 you know, especially in a disease where I know that that type of data is available, I'm gonna rely heavily on the randomized trial data. Now, I think if we're dealing with a heavily refractory patient, with limited treatment options, uh, then, uh, uh, and where the data is not going to be as good, depending on all the other prior therapies they had, their specific genetic subtype, then I'm not going to be demanding, you know, a strict randomized study. I'm going to have a very informed consent with my patients on what we know and what we don't know, what I think the toxicities and what I think the chances are. And in that that particular case, I'm way more liberal liberal, uh, to try things that maybe aren't as strict by the evidence. And that's kind of how I've been approaching it. And depending on where we are in that pendulum is how I adjust the conversation.
0: That's great. And, and, and Jayton, just to piggyback on this, I mean, I think um, real-world evidence, thats it emerged from what Aaron was saying, right? It emerged from the fact, uh, actually, I'll, I'll backtrack. I recall a conversation, and you both may laugh at this, during fellowship. If you remember speaking about DLBCL, Aaron, You remember the first trial came out in the New England Journal of Medicine by Bernard Coiffier, and it was in patients between the ages of 60 and 80. Uh, If you recall, uh, that was the original study and showed adding rituximab to CHOP improved survival. And I remember having a conversation where one of the faculty members at the institution where I did my fellowship saying, if somebody is 58, I don't really have data on that. And that's where I always think that's really taking it a little bit to the extreme. I mean, I can't have data on every single thing. Is that Jaton where real-world evidence emerged from? Is that was the why real-world evidence emerged? I think in part, but if actually, I just I want to step back a little bit because
2: one of the first comments you made was that that we're all taught, and I agree that this is what we're taught, that randomized clinical trials should inform or should set our standard of care. And that's what we're taught. And actually, I think. I would, I would say that's a nuanced uh, point, but I would actually step back a little bit and say clinical research and data set how we practice medicine and standards of care, not specifically randomized clinical trials. Because I think that when you think about clinical research in the broader scope with the data that we have, and I think Aaron is exactly right, you have to be data-driven, uh, and that's what's going to really drive decisions, not just randomized clinical trials. And what I mean by that is that there is a lot of clinical research that happens, and we can learn from every piece of clinical trial uh, that we see. So you know, if we look at a randomized clinical trial that's from a registration enabling FDA um, phase three, that is a very different intent. And there's other Phase three trials that are done through cooperative groups or through, you know other national cooperative group systems, et cetera, that are also going to be very informative. And those are also randomized Phase three studies. But each one of them serves a very different purpose. So I would say that if you step back, it's not just a randomized clinical trial that informs practice. I would say the body of evidence really dictates that. And from every single clinical trial, because to your point, we can learn something from every one of the clinical trials. And I think that's the when there's so many different trials that are happening. You see this. There's lots of phase two trials, phase three trials. And I think what our job is to learn as much as we can from each one of those trials. And when you put all that together, that gives you the body of evidence. And there are gaps. And I think 100% we can dive much more into real world data because you're absolutely right. There is big gaps about how you take data from these randomized clinical trials and how do you apply it into the real world. And that's where real world evidence fits in.
0: Yeah. And, And Aaron, I mean, over the past several years, the FDA has embraced incorporating real-world evidence in some of the regulatory processes that they actually have. As, as a critic of what's going on, when you think about that, do you, how do you evaluate the FDA processes and what they have been doing? I mean, I, I think we can all agree nothing is perfect, but despite imperfect science, we have to help patients, right? I mean, the, you know, a patient in front of us, we have to decide on the therapy. So uh, for you, what's, what are your thoughts into how the FDA has been approaching some of the evidence and real-world data in deciding some of the regulatory approvals?
1: You know, I've, I've, I've mixed thoughts. You know, you, right? we can't just rely on great cooperative group clinical trials. Uh, but I mean, I'll take a step back, too. I think every trial, whether it's a registration trial or a cooperative group, I mean, its intent should be, for one thing, to better the treatment of our patients, not maybe necessarily drug approval. But you know, real world data, we've just been, I feel like I've been burned so many times (laughs) on real world data where, you know, I'll go back to the dose adjusted epoch example that like I thought for sure that that stuff was gonna be better. That's how I was trained. We were seeing, we were using it. We had retrospective data. Uh, It just seemed like it was gonna be better than ran a. I think a pretty good, the CalGB50303, a pretty good study that showed that I was wrong and I was actually hurting patients. Um, I was causing more neuropathy. I was causing more febrile neutropenia. And I'm sure in a few years we'll find out we maybe cause more therapy related leukemias. So I, I don't know, I, again, it depends on the scenario if we're dealing with, you know, I treat a lot of histiocytosis. I, I'm a, I have a huge panel of that. We're never gonna have good studies in that. So I rely on real world data cause it's the best data that I'm gonna have. Um, but in scenarios where we can have better than just real world data, then I want better than real world data. Yeah, the FDA is approving way more drugs um, because of the use of real-world data or single-arm studies, we're getting drugs to patients faster. But some of those drugs—I I hope all those drugs end up helping patients—but I know for sure some of them probably. Well, we've seen it uh, uh, with numerous examples where they end up not helping patients, and then we're just stuck in a scenario where I'm giving, uh, you know, as the clinician, I'm with a with a patient who doesn't have any more lines of therapy, and there's this FDA-approved drug that's available for them, and. It's like, can I say no? I don't know. That's a very tough situation as a clinician. So what I do in those situations, I say, I don't know if this helps, it's expensive and we know it has toxicity and we make a decision together. So I didn't really answer your question greatly. It's a very complex and I do welcome real data. It should maybe guide our decisions on what to do and help form trials when we can do that. But in situations where we can't do trials and I'm all for just relying on the best available evidence.
0: Jayton, I mean, in your role when you were at MD Anderson, as well as when you transitioned to Cario Farm, as you discuss, I mean, have you, do you usually have a lot of conversations with the FDA ahead of designing trials? Like mean, how much of the, I guess, take us through the process. Do you design a trial, then go to the FDA and say, this is what we are thinking. Is this, is this acceptable for regulatory approval And how much of the decision is what the FDA dictates for quote unquote regulatory versus really what Aaron is bringing up, which is sometimes regulatory approval is not synonymous with better patient care. It's just, you know, it's a stamp from the FDA. And I think that's where we struggle all of us into, you know, there's like, I I mean, I give you something from the CLL world, like there's so many drugs compared to chlorambucil, right? And. I tweeted uh, about like a couple of months ago, I said there should be no randomized control trial against Corambisol in 2020, actually even from years ago. But it has been from a regulatory perspective. So help us bring this together because in your role, you talk to the FDA, you do drug development, and we struggle with this. Yeah, that's a great question.
2: You know, I think that for sure, I think there's a couple of key things out of there. I, I really have to give kudos to the FDA. I mean, the FDA is real partners in improving outcomes in patients. And the, with the leadership of, you know, Dr. Pazder, um, I mean, I think the FDA is very, very focused on really making sure that we really improve outcomes for patients and trying to support drug development and being
0: partners. in How processes. do you define outcomes? When you say improve outcomes, let's define outcomes.
2: Yeah, so I think that it, it all differs, And so, I mean, I think that if I step back before I get to the outcomes piece of it, um, because that gets into kind of accelerated approval and surrogate endpoints and then uh, confirmatory studies. But that process about what you asked specifically with the, the agency, it really is a partnership. So as we embark on really any trial, we have discussions with the agency. You submit briefing books, you submit these meeting requests, and there's multiple types of meeting requests where you meet with the agency throughout the entire drug development process we have this phase, we're gonna do this phase one trial and we submit the phase one trial and they give you feedback as you get that data back, you meet with them at the end of the phase two and say, we are planning this phase three. They give you lots of feedback. So they challenge you and really to make sure that this is a highly rigorous and it's looked at by multiple members at the FDA across the board. And so it really is a very collaborative process throughout where they're engaged the entire time. You don't walk in and say, here's my trial design, yes or no. It's really, there's been multiple conversations throughout that entire process uh, to get there. And when you get to the point of like an end point specifically, you specifically, know, I think that um, there's two ways of doing that. So for accelerated approval,
0: um, you know, I think- before, before we do the sure. pathways, yep. Aaron, when you talk about outcomes, from your standpoint, what, are, what do you mean by outcomes? What do you wanna see from a trial when you talk outcomes?
1: Patients feel better or they live longer.
0: Okay. When so, those
1: questions can be answered. All
0: right. So basically, in your definition of patient's outcomes, either improved overall survival, when you say live longer, feeling better, quality of life, uh, decreased symptoms, uh, however, we, we, patient report outcomes, however we define this. Jayton, that's what we're talking about outcomes. Is that what the FDA usually talks about or not really, right? Uh, they do. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you can't. It's
2: difficult to design a trial with an overall survival endpoint. So the number of things we can look at. And if we look at historically, you, I think nobody would argue that our cancer patients today are living longer, uh, period, because of the way the FDA has behaved and the way that we have had multiple new drug approvals. So from the time of having just cytotoxic chemotherapy to the era of now with multiple really very focused precision medicine, targeted therapies, immunotherapy, and a number of others all of those in aggregate have improved outcomes. And if we look at myeloma, for example, you know, we look at a drug and this is where understanding of what are the outcomes that improve survival. So if we just start with myeloma, for example, we know that response rates, just the fact of having a response rate of 20 to 30% is correlated to improvements in progression free survival. And we've seen that progression free survival has led to improvements in overall survival. And you can look at our myeloma survivors at a very high level. They used to live two to three years. With new drugs, they live five to seven years, and now there's patients living 10 years. So there's no way we can't argue that our new therapies have led to patients surviving 10 years where they never did that before. That's just, I mean, we have to look at historical data. They would not live 10 years now without the new therapies. And so we have very good correlated data that overall response rates do correlate to PFS.
0: What are your thoughts, Aaron? Overall, uh, response rates correlate to PFS and overall survival. Yeah,
1: I, I think we can say that patients are living long with myeloma due to our new therapies. We could say that due to Revlimid. Revlimid's been shown to uh, prolong overall survival. Uh, we can definitely say that with, with with many of our therapies, but I disagree that response rate always correlates with overall survival.
2: Progression-free doesn't... survival. I don't want, let me, I'm sorry to be right. clear. It correlates with progression-free survival.
1: Yeah, well, fine, yeah, but but I don't think we can use either of those uh, as surrogates unless, unless we have to. Uh, uh, I mean, the Bellini stock trial is a very good example of that, um, where they added venetoclax to Belcate Dex uh, versus Velcade Dex, and uh, response rate was better, uh, PFS was better, but survival was worse. So we clearly can be shown wrong down that pathway. So again, I, I, I do come off, I think sometimes as negative on Twitter, as you said, it can come off as a but I feel, I want cell to work, I want these drugs to help our patients. I just wanna know for sure they're helping our patients before we adopt it to practice, uh, especially in the uh, earlier lines of therapy. And we can show them overall survival. You don't need to wait for the median overall survival to hit. You can show that well before, and we can definitely, design studies in myeloma looking at overall survival. I, I, it's not yeah, an impossibility.
0: Maybe that's a good segue to you, to talk about Selenexor a little bit, because maybe we can use it as a platform into how the trial was designed. And first of all, um, maybe, Jayton, a little bit into how Selenexor works, just to for us to understand. Uh, sure. Because, you know, as I get older now, I become selfish. I ask questions that I would like to learn. That's what happens when you're a host. So just how it works, and then, how did, you, how did you decide on designing the trial? Because obviously Aaron is a little bit critical of this and he's not alone. I mean, there are obviously, you know, it's a nice debate. So absolutely. tell us how Selenexa works and how did you decide on designing the trial?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So actually that's a great point. Thanks for asking how Celenexo works because I think if you understand how Celenexo works, a lot of things kind of fall in place. And so as opposed to saying that this is a novel target or even a myeloma specific drug, This is actually not a myeloma-specific drug or even a lymphoma-specific drug. And the way it works gets fundamentally to cancer biology. It's not a BCMA, it's not a CD38. So if I step back for all your uh, um, listeners, we all are born with an innate cancer defense mechanism. We all have tumor suppressor proteins that you have, Chadi, you have, Aaron, that I have. And these tumor suppressor proteins function by auditing the DNA. And when there's mutations in the DNA that signal that this is a precancerous and this is turning to a malignant cell, that tumor suppressor protein leads, identifies that and leads to cell apoptosis and the death of that cell before it becomes malignant and proliferates. So that's our own cancer. This is like if you have immune, therapy, immune system that fights uh, antib- uh, bacteria and viruses, this is our own cancer defense mechanism. Malignant cells all recognize this and they try and bypass this or, uh, or evade the mechanisms of tumor suppressor proteins. Now, exportin one or XPO-1 is one of these proteins that shuttles tumor suppressor proteins out of the nucleus and maintains this balance of proteins. And so if you look across every malignancy that we've looked at, they all overexpress XPO-1. So this is, gets down to cancer biology, fundamental cancer biology. And when you overexpress XP01, you shuttle those tumor suppressor proteins out of the nucleus, so now the cancer cells can evade the function of that. And that's fundamentally how it works. So when you inhibit XP01, which is what Cellinexor does, it actually leads to nuclear localization of these tumor suppressor proteins and activation. So now they're active and functioning. So it's akin a little bit to immunotherapy, where you activate the immune system, which then kills, uh, leads to killing the cancer cells. In that same way, inhibiting next or inhibiting XP1 really activates your own innate cancer defense, reactivates that tumor suppressor protein. and also there also leads to these oncoproteins. There's these, a number of these proteins that drive cancer, like CMIC, and BCL2 and BCL6. We've tried to target these proteins for the last 30 years and been very difficult. The first really targeted protein was venetoclax with BCL2 inhibition. Now, the way these oncoproteins are made, the messenger RNAs are shuttled also by xpo one into the cytoplasm where they're translated by the ribosomes. And you see these higher levels of oncoproteins. So, by inhibiting xpo one you keep those messenger RNAs inside the nucleus, your oncoprotein levels go down. So, the drivers of cancer, the drivers of oncogenesis, oncoproteins all go down. So, that's why, you know, when you look at this drug, it's fascinating because it's not like we're doing a scattershot approach. That's why we see activity wherever we go. In myeloma, we've seen activity. Lymphoma, single agent, 30% response rate. When you look in MDS, uh, myelodysplastic zone, after the patients have progressed on HMA therapy, it works in about a third of the patients in a complete response. So there's, there's Other places, biologically, that's how it works, and that's why we see activity broadly across many cancers.
0: The novel mechanism of action. I mean, Aaron, that. I mean, that's good, but doesn't get to the point that we want to, write. I mean, nobody is disputing it's a novel mechanism of action. I think, to Aaron's point, we'd like to see how it helps. So, Aaron, uh, uh, any comments here before we go into how the trial was designed?
1: No, I mean, it is, a very, it is a very cool mechanism. I like looking at that picture. I mean, the bottom line, though, is, as you just said, does inhibiting that nuclear exporter make people feel better or live longer and how do we best fit this in? It does have activity, I'm not gonna deny that. And I think it's our job uh, to find where we can best fit this drug in to the treatment of our patients. Yeah.
0: So Jayton, so, no, J- J- you have this novel drug, I think novel mechanism of action and um, uh, that you see goes to the cancer biology. As you decided to design a trial, you picked multiple myeloma and then you proceeded to design the trial. Uh, maybe take us why you picked myeloma because you see broader activity and number two, how did you design the trial? What went through your mind? So then Aaron has an opportunity to see, to talk about the design.
2: Yeah, fair enough. So, you know, in in the initial phase one trial with all heme malignancies um, there's two early phase one trials. One was in heme and one was in solid tumors and in our hematologic malignancy study, we enrolled a number of different patients across different diseases from low-grade lymphomas to uh, high-grade lymphomas and CLL, AML, MDS, and myeloma. And that's where we saw the initial signals of activity in myeloma, especially when it combined with that. And so based on that early signals, now, mind you, when we looked at lymphoma, we saw a 30% response rate in large cell lymphoma. And then when we looked at a number of other types of diseases, we also saw activity, but we saw the activity in myeloma. And as a small company, you just have to choose one to focus on. We couldn't do everything, you know, five years ago. Um, so we focused on myelin based on the initial phase one experience. And then, you know, there's a huge learning curve, Chadi. And, you know, I think when you think about drug development, one of the hardest things is you have a brand new drug. I'm trying to figure out what the right dose is, what the right schedule is. And you know, we take a lot of these things for granted, but trying to figure out, do I give it twice a day, once a day, three times a day, every day, twice a week, what dose do I take it morning, night, all those things, you know, you have to really takes a long time to figure out. And we... Uh, gone through this experience with drug development where we go through high doses and our standard doses of things and then learn as we move along. Now, let's say we're moved very quickly in our drug development and understanding Selenixer with working with all the investigators. So we chose myeloma initially because of the phase one experience. And how do we design that very first registration study? Well, you know, I think any drug that makes a difference in myeloma has to prove single agent activity with a response rate between 20 and 30%. And so and you prove it after the patient's progress on everything else. So carfilzomib, uh, you know, when it was approved, had a 22.9% response rate. Pomalidomide had a 29% response rate. Daratumab had a 30% response rate. And so when you look at drugs with single agent activity, all these range between 22 to 29% response rate. So your point in your first trial is to prove single agent activity after they've progressed and everything else. So the initial STORM trial was extremely rigorous where patients had to prove that their disease was refractory to all the drugs that prove that we know that work. Lenalidomide, pomalidomide, bortezomib, carfilzomib, and daratumab. And If you look at a lot of the therapies now that are being developed, it's only triple-class refractory. We went in a much more refractory patient population than any trial ever to date, with all five drugs being refractory.
0: What did this trial show you, in the, the STORM trial? And I want to take Aaron's input on the STORM trial.
2: So I think there's things, two major things
0: that we learned from that. One is that
2: Selenexer led to a 26.4 response rate. When you look at triple-class refractory, 25.4% in the penta refractory, refractory to all five drugs. So we demonstrated single agent activity, essentially with selinexor and dexamethasone. Dexamethasone has a less than five percent, two percent response rate of any in seventh line of therapy. So these patients had seven lines of therapy, refractory everything. What we learned is in this setting that selinexor has activity, and one of the key things, Tony, that we learned, and Aaron, that we learned, is that there's actually several patients that went into a complete remission that were MRD negative. So after they progressed, after everything else, to be able to demonstrate MRD negativity, which is Essentially, what Derek Tumab also had two patients or three patients uh, with, you know, a small number of patients, I should be clear, mm-hmm. their MRD
0: negativity. So that's what we learned is that this drug has single agent activity. And Jayton, ba- based on that trial, it was, uh, it was approved, accelerated, and was asked to wait for the Boston trial, which is the randomized study. That's right. right. So, Aaron, you heard about the STORM trial. We're going to talk about Boston in a little bit, but you heard about the STORM trial and what went through. Thoughts on that, comments on that, uh, critiques, uh, whatever you have in mind.
1: I think to the storm trials benefit, as Jayden pointed out, I mean, these were sick patients uh, enrolled on that study who truly were refractory to just about everything. And they were able to show a response rate, uh, you know, just to play devil's advocate. I mean, I, ideally, I mean, the clinician to me would have preferred comparing that to retreatment with anything or alkylating agents like cytoxin and things of that nature, where you can get reasonable, even bendamustine, you can get 20 to 30% response rates. Then that, that at least would have allowed us to a little bit on sequencing, but I, I, you know, I think that was fine. They showed in a phase two study that it has activity in it. Answers shows that they you know, the patients can achieve remission and have a progression-free survival. It doesn't answer anything else beyond that, uh, other than that. Now Very the sure. FDA approved it on that. That's, you know, a different, well, kind of our discussion, whether they should have waited for more or better data, uh, or that was enough. And the FDA felt that that was enough to give access to patients who were refractory. And in that setting, I do discuss or uh, with my patients and, and go over the data. And,
2: so, and Aaron- one thing if I just point out, Chadi, one other interesting thing, Aaron, uh, I, I forget to mention this, but uh, you brought that up as a good point. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Chadi. But in addition to those five drugs, patients also have to be refractory to steroids and refractory uh, or had prior alkylating-based therapy. So everybody had cytoxin and you know, transplants. So a you know, number of patients had transplant and alkylating therapy as well. So it doesn't answer your question, but just want to
0: make sure. Right. To. No, thank you for the clarification. And then, Aaron, you know, the, the FDA approved based on the STORM trial, and I think you mentioned you discussed it in that scenario, but then I, I presume you were eagerly awaiting the Boston trial. And, yes, and, yeah. And, and from your standpoint,
1: approved on that
0: scenario, I want to hear from you, Aaron, about the yeah. Boston trial. Tell us from your understanding, when the Boston trial came out, how did you look at, how did you assess it, and then we'll take Jatin's input on that.
1: Well, first I'll say this, the FDA approved it in that setting, but it was already at that point being pushed by, you know, I won't point fingers to start combining it with other stuff, using it earlier. Uh, it's gonna have more activity really, we didn't know any of those things. Those studies were all ongoing or going, uh, combining with other agents. But the Boston study, uh, Jaden, correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. Um, no, um, it was a randomized, uh, a phase three uh, study comparing Selinexor or Velcade Dex on a weekly schedule uh, of those agents Uh, versus Velcade dex uh, in uh, relapsed multiple myeloma. They've only needed to receive treatment with one prior therapy, although it could be up to three or four, I think, uh, uh, prior therapies. And um, the SVD arm, uh, the endpoint was progression-free survival. uh, And the SVD arm one, uh, uh, statistically significant, there was an increase uh, of progression-free survival. I don't remember the months off the top of my head. If yeah. Jayden wants to point out more, then I can go into I'm, my critiques.
0: I wanna, I'm going to ask from Jayden, but I want to know, uh, when you looked at the Boston trial, so you've got SVD versus VD, um, and there were statistics, what were your, in your view, Aaron, As you know, if you perform a critical appraisal to the trial, what were your concerns about the Boston trial?
1: Well, the first glaring concern is VD was used as a control arm. Um, I forget the start date of trial accrual, but... Um, Uh, in all myeloma guidelines, Mayo, NCCN, and based off robust clinical data, using a doublet at first relapse, uh, unless frail is highly not advised. So um, I would, if that study was open to the University of California, San Diego, I would not have enrolled in that study because if my patient would have been randomized to the control arm, I would not have offered the control arm. Therefore, it would have been unethical for me to to enroll uh, the patient uh, in that study in the United States. Um, So that's the first glaring study, a glaring uh, um, 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 issue I have with the study. I think the second issue is if you look, uh, I think it was 65 to 70% of the patients um, at relapse had already received Velcade, okay? So on top of getting a really subpar and control arm that no one on earth I feel would use in the United States, these patients who got Velcade up front, seventy, if they were randomized to the control arm, got retreated with Velcade and dexamethasone, two drugs they already got. So that's even worse than getting the Velcade-dex up front. And then the third point, I don't actually know this, but I know if you, so say you got Velcade up front and then got randomized to the Velcade-dex arm, they allowed crossover, which I'm actually usually a huge fan of, but you then could have crossed over back to SVD, meaning you could have gotten Velcade-dex plus whatever up front, then Velcade-dex, then SVD like that no one are, I wouldn't treat any myeloma uh, uh, patient like that and then finally on top of all those facts I mean the endpoint was progression free survival so uh, we don't know if the addition uh, uh, improves the length of survival the trial offers nothing other than telling us yes if we give this drug uh, uh, compared to a control arm we do not use it is better uh, it will increase the progression free survival and relapse rate it tells us nothing about survival where to sequence the drug it, uh, it just doesn't answer that so in today's current practice. My feeling is I would limit Selinexor to the STORM study uh, uh, where patients have limited options and we know they can offer a response rate.
0: So Jayton, let's try to dissect this. I think these are valid concerns. So let's start with the control arm. Yep. I think one of the issues that Aaron brought up, obviously as you heard that the control arm are two drugs while in the US at least, we use three drug arm as a control. Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the things that we have to be, there's, we have to really dissect a couple of different points there. One is that going back to what we talked about early on is understanding the point of clinical research and randomized clinical trials and which randomized clinical trials. So remember the point of this trial was two things. One was to, from an FDA perspective, confirm the activity of Selenexer, isolate the activity of Selenexer and prove it's effective. And so in that setting, this has a very different purpose from a regulatory perspective. It may not answer all of our, how do you, you know, from Aaron's perspective with VD, but what it does is isolate the benefit or activity of, and that's the only way you can do that is a phase three trials, isolate the benefit of one drug by comparing it. And so that's the whole point of this. And so when you do that, and one of the nice things that you could... FDA, but why? I mean, if... It, it, subpo- and that's true for every trial right now in myeloma, if I just finish with it, So even the Bellini trials compared to Velcade-Dex, almost every trial to date has been a two versus three drug, even as of as of last year. And so really, I think that's... you know Even if we look at the pomalidomide, it's really pom-dex versus... They're changing that now, and they're becoming more and more stringent, saying now we have three drugs. Is it really ethical? So we're going to be planning and doing you know, future trials, but it's not gonna be in that same patient population. So this is what they've done historically. And you're right, as we move forward, you can't compare to a doublet. And so the FDA is recognizing that, but that's where the history of FDA approvals for myeloma have been and they're changing.
0: Aaron, any thoughts on
1: that? So yes, I understand you to do it to show activity to meet this FDA requirement, but to do that, you had to subject patients to substandard care. I wouldn't enroll any family. I mean, I'm gonna be critical on that. That's fine. It's not about if you're enrolled to this trial,
2: Aaron. It's really saying that we've now identified the activity of CELNX. So now the real challenge to us and all of us is what have we learned from this?
1: But you had to enroll patients on a substandard care to answer your question. That trial can't be done. And, you know, just because the other myeloma studies have done it, which I'm working on that research project as we speak, Uh, um, doesn't make it right. And we've looked at this systematically, not all myeloma studies do that. Uh, And at the time of this enrollment, Velcadex was not the standard of care. We already knew from the SWOG that RVD, uh, you know, the triplets were better than doublets. uh, From newly diagnosed. Yeah, newly diagnosed. diagnosed, But we knew in the relapse setting too. Um, So if you're saying the, the point of this study was to fulfill a regulatory requirement and show activity, that's fine, but to do that, you had to subject patients enrolled in the United States to an unethical, subpar control arm i won't change my stand on that
2: because and that's, that's fine but that doesn't take away what you can learn from this and that's the well, whole point out of this
1: That's Is that we, what we research. we can't these are human you, things We. it's not about learning it's not about the science it's about helping patients so to learn we have to do something bad then we have to figure out a better way to learn
2: i, I don't, be, don't think it's necessarily bad because i mean these are the global study and i think you can talk about you know, the purpose and how this trial was done. And that's what a number of trials have done. And then you can actually say, what have we also learned from this? And I think that the major learnings from this in drug development and how we improve outcomes is, how do we learn these drugs? So there's a lot of really important learned lessons.
0: What we've, the pivotal thing that we've learned. The question, the question that begs, and again, I'll admit, so I'm not a myeloma expert. I actually did not treat myeloma. I, did, I treated lymphomas. But the question is, outside of a clinical trial, so let's take a patient that comes in to see you, Jaden, or sees Aaron, and you're not going to enroll in Boston. Would that patient be treated with VD, with Velcade dexamethasone, or would you offer that patient triplet therapy in the U.S.? Because that's really, from listening to Aaron, that's what I believe. That's the question comes to my mind. Yeah, but I don't think that's, I mean, I think you can
2: debate the, um, you know, the the that the design of the trial, and that's fine. Um, and there's specific purposes for that trial, and the FDA signed off on it. Multiple IRBs signed off on it, but that's okay. The point is, right now, you have a positive phase three study, and so what can you learn from it? We can debate the merits of that trial design if it was done today, but the point is, what can you learn? And that's what you need to focus on. And I think there are major learnings. And so this is the key piece of everything. What we learned last year, Chadi, from STORM was that selenexer work, but the challenge with selenexer and, and the STORM data was that we gave twice, high dose twice weekly, a total of 160 milligrams. What this trial has taught us, and that's what I was trying to get to earlier when you talk about clinical research, you take learnings from every one of the trials. We take learnings from multiple maintenance trials. You put them all together and you decide, how does this fit together? So what did we learn from that? Let's focus on that. And what we've learned is how to dose Selenexer. So now when we look at all of the Selenexer in combination doses, they're all given low dose once a week. Fundamentally different. And I think, you know, to Aaron's point, there are side effects that we see with twice, twice weekly high dose. What have you learned? So if you focus on what you've learned, we've learned how to give it. We've learned it's active in combinations, and we've seen this now with multiple different partner yeah. drugs.
0: How How about the other point that Aaron brought? I think Aaron, you brought. Correct me, Pamela. I don't want to cite you wrong, but you brought up the point of crossover, and I found this intriguing, that you have sixty-five to seventy percent. Maybe you were off by some percentage points that crossed over. So essentially, you could have had Velcade, dexamethasone, still got Velcade dexamethasone and crossover to Velcade dexamethasone arm. Any comments on that? Yes, yeah, so what
1: I was saying was you could have gotten up front, you could have gotten a triplet with Velcade dex, and I don't know the specifics I couldn't find that reported. Uh, then uh, you could have been randomized to the Velcade dexamethasone arm, so getting Velcade a second time without a triplet. And then at crossover, it, once you progressed on that, could have gotten celly Velcade dex, which is not a, a appropriate chain of treatment uh, for a, a myeloma patient, in my opinion. And I'll go one back thing. You know what? I don't care that we learned how to dose LNX XOR, uh, that it's better twice a week. I don't care because we had to learn it doing something bad by subjecting patients to an inferior standard of care. You won't get me to change my mind about it. And I'll continue to be passionate about that on, on Twitter unless there's something you can tell me otherwise. And if all we learned from subjecting patients to a substandard control arm was how to dose cell an XOR then it definitely wasn't worth it to me or to any of those patients. Uh, uh, I mean, you, uh, it's, just, it's just not now,
2: right. I think the F, it's a little bit challenging to say that that's because the FDA and multiple IRBs said that was an appropriate control arm in that right patient population. They were wrong. It may not be for everybody that you give VD to, but many patients who were there, You know, we look at the trials that are done globally and centers in the U.S. If you as a physician said that this in the third line, because you can go from one to three lines, that this is appropriate for this patient who's frail. We have patients of, up to the age of 85. So if they're patients, you're right. It's not gonna be the best standard of care for somebody who's 50 and, and getting in second line. We're not arguing that, but there are some patients that can get VD. And so I think to throw the bat- baby out of the bathwater and call that unethical, I think really challenges what the FDA and a number of other folks are really focused on the right thing. And the whole crossover point, that's really up to physicians. I mean, if you know, you—if you, if the physician decides that they want to cross over and that's the only therapeutic option in whatever part of the world they're being treated, then that was there to offer that
1: patient who was on VD and novel therapy. Will you release so that goes- data? Will you release the amount of, I'm curious, uh, how many patients got Velcade up front, then got randomized to Velcade dex, and then it's the third line got Velcade dex plus celly. Um, because maybe it's That's not, and then it's a moot point, and I would stop bringing up that
2: point, but if- That point doesn't impact but, the progression. We can go through that data, but that has no impact on progression-free survival or anything, all those patients get censored.
1: No, but they, it would impact later down the road when you report overall survival, it would definitely impact overall survival. So that, that, that information, I think, would be pertinent to know. Yep.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts about, I think, uh, um, Aaron, the third point you brought up was endpoints, right? I think, uh, wasn't that, you talked about the control arm. We discussed that a little bit. We talked about the crossover. Wasn't your third point, the end point, um, the, uh, uh, the response or the progression free survival?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would have preferred overall survival and I know you can do it, uh, you, know, uh, you know, right? Cause you know, let's just say this holds true and it does improve PFS, but we still, you know don't know is whether sequencing it offers any, you know total length of life might be the same. If we just give the Sally at the end, like we're doing already, as opposed to moving it up front, what we don't know for sure that moving it up front will do is add the toxicity of selenexor, And we haven't gotten to it, but the you know it'd be one thing if we're talking about daratumumab or revlimid. We're we're not. Uh, the cost of this drug to moving it up front, uh, you know, especially you know this was done in countries where they don't have access to some of our drugs like revlimid uh, or, or even daratumumab due to expenses or other reasons. I find it pretty hard to believe that they'll have great access to. Selenexor $22,000
0: a month. Aaron, you did mention earlier that you would, I mean, in a patient who has failed all of the therapies, you actually do sit down and talk about Selenexor. It's not like, you know, you you use the STORM trial that came out last year and you, I think last, maybe a year and a half, but, but you do talk about the STORM trial. It's not that you don't discuss it. I think your your beef appears to be more in the Boston trial, more than the STORM trial. Is that Correct. That is true. I, I
1: don't have much of a beef with the storm trial and, you know whether the FDA approved it or not that was out of my hands uh, I think that was a reasonable trial to do and it showed activity of the drug my beef is with the uh, Boston study especially with the approval suggesting that we should use it from a uh, second line which we right now have no idea if we should use it and how that trial was done those are my beefs
2: yeah and I think one of the key things that we know is that consistently so we, it's always helped to apply you know basic kind of cancer biology principles and what we know from therapeutics. And is that two things, one is that introducing novel therapies earlier in the therapy makes sense. And that's what we've seen with you know, Dara got approved and started using early lines of therapies. to bring novel mechanisms of action. And so we've seen that, especially when you see a drug like CELNX that works at basic fundamentally different levels. And so we've seen this consistently. And so, you know, I'm not saying to use it in, you know, first relapse, there's lots of good options for patients in first relapse, but that combination is active. And and that's the reason why it led to the FDA approval for a range from one to three lines of therapy. So I think there is clearly activity that's been demonstrated that led to the FDA approval of that. Is it going to be in first first relapse? No. I mean, if that's not where you're comfortable using it, there's other good options or there are a lot of great options for patients, but to then go to the other you know uh, there's many patients that benefit from that i think maybe in second and third line after a upon or additional therapy adoption so i think that there's roles there for different patients there's activity that, that's seen with selenetra and patients with high risk disease so i think this is where there's multiple options and we have to figure out what makes sense for that individual patient with renal dysfunction or cardiac comorbidities or heart you know high risk disease because of the activity so that's how i think that you you know, it's not for everybody in first relapse. I, I agree with you, Aaron. This is really going to be picking out the right combination at the right arm, at the right line of therapy for each patient. But that's really what's good for this is it gives patients and physicians another option in earlier lines
1: of therapy. Aaron? Yeah, I, I, you know, but we don't know if it's good at third or fourth. I mean, so in the United States will have treated these patients with map, cryprolis, and, and all these things, uh, map if you use that drug. And so... You're suggesting we should use it then, but your trial did not answer the question whether it's good in that situation. So I, uh, so I don't know if it works in that situation. I only know from your study is that it's better in a population where compared to a population where 70% were treated with the same drug again. So I
2: can't answer any of those questions. So do I you use it is. That's a great point. Do you use Palm Veld-X or Velcade Dera? Uh, so my standard of care- Is was only Palm Veldex used in fifth line because it was compared against VD because Both VD DARA and Palm Veldex were compared to VD. So, do you not use either one of those triplets until seventh line?
1: Yeah, actually, I I, I don't use them until really late. And again, just because someone else did it, I again, I'm trying to fix I'm just this whole that problem.
2: same analogy you're saying was compared to VD, so it's irrelevant. But I think Palm Veldex is an absolute standard of care, as is VD DARA in those earlier lines of therapy. People I mean, I, use this.
1: I mean, I don't actually use much Palm Veldex. I mean, honestly, I can tell you how I do it. I do RVD, Rev until progression or intolerability, then Dara uh, Velcade dex, and then Kyprolis palmdex. dex. Why Dara Velcade dex was compared to Velcade dex. Yes, but that was, but this, that what was done five the same years thing. ago.
0: I think my, 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 listen, exact. My listeners is
2: you can't use the same argument. Was, that study was
0: ethical. <laughs> <My> listeners <laughs> that, that don't you know can't
2: my use that argument. You just,
1: you use the same argument in two different ways. You can't I'm do that. the same <laughs> argument two different it's ways. The it's is completely different scenarios. <laughs>
0: The listeners funny. don't know myeloma now completely, I, they absolutely- I am right. no, Jane, I'm
1: no myeloma expert. I stand, I get I, full disclosure. So, you know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. So, you know- uh, I'm not saying you're doing it wrong, but I'm just saying that- <laughs>
0: No, Jayton, I think, I think what Aaron is saying, I'll try, I think he is, I mean, and Aaron, again, correct me. It's not, it's not an issue necessarily just with the Boston trial. I think we're using this as an example. In fact, Aaron himself, just said that there are other trials that have very similar shortcomings. And what he's saying is just because another trial was quote unquote flawed. I mean, you know, again, I've, I, that doesn't, it's not an excuse to have another flawed trial. I don't think his beef is with one trial versus another. I think what he's trying to say, and I'm speaking, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm quoting you is he wants the proper standard arm, regardless of whether you're comparing palm, rev, whatever it is. That's what he's saying.
2: And I totally agree. And I think that's exactly the, the whole point. And so dissecting the difference between a randomized clinical trial that's done with a regulatory purpose to really identify the activity of that drug to confirm the activity is very different. And that's why you know we fund the NCI and the CTIP and spend billions on these cooperative groups is to really answer these practice informing studies. So you take what you can learn from each one of those studies and so, you know, the SWAG study that, you know, Aaron is referring to with RVD versus VD, that was a cooperative group study that set a standard of care. The ECOG did RVD versus KRD. That is a practice informing thing. Well, obviously, it didn't change because it kept it. But those, so I think that's the whole point that we learn from all of these studies. And so the CTEP and cooperative do these practice informing studies. There's other larger studies that we do that are practice informing or changing. So recognize the role for each one of these and what can you learn, that's all I'm saying. I, I, think- I agree with you, this is not gonna be, oh. you know, I agree with the flaws, but just learn what you can from each and recognize the role of this whole healthcare system that we
0: have in place. And Aaron, Aaron I, think, I think one of the issues is really lies in the FDA, right? I mean, I think if, again, not, you know, if the FDA says it's okay to use a comparator SVD then you know the manufacturer is going to use VD because they obviously also interested in getting a regulatory approval. So I don't know how much of this is in the FDA bucket versus the manufacturer bucket versus the clinician who says, I'll make a decision, approve it, I'll decide based on the data. So who who takes, in your opinion, who's responsible?
1: For, for a study like this, I would actually say it relies on the investigators. If If I'm asked to open a study uh, that I think's not good, I just say no. So no one forced any investigator in the United States to open up the Boston study. They were asked, I'm assuming, you know, usually a company reaches out and then we present it to your disease team and the disease team either approves or not. So, you know, I'm not, I mean, right? You can't do it without investigators. So, so clearly some investigators disagree with me and felt that the study was reasonable.
0: No, no, sure. And I think, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I think um, you put 10 oncologists in a room, you get 15 opinions as we know. But uh, Jayton, to the extent you can share with us, and I don't know if you sure. can, have you had scenarios where you've offered the Boston trial to a site or a center where the investigator says, you know, this is not how I treat my patients. I don't feel comfortable. Has this come up?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, um, and that absolutely happens because if you go to academic centers, they're going to use a lot, You know, especially three and four or five years ago. It was still very much triplet based, and in the communities, it was not triplet based. Remember, this trial started, you know, four plus years ago. So, in academic centers, um, you know, sure, they're not going to use it because they're going to have triplets. They're going to have other c- clinical trials in in other centers. They do, you know, and we have the same issue right now. We're you know we're designing a, a pomalidomide based study right now and having similar discussions with the agency about what the right patient population is, and so. That is an absolute decision that's made by the physician, by the IRBs saying, is this an ethical uh, and then is this appropriate? Um, and you go through those questions. And it's it's not easy, but you do that and you try and find the right patient population.
0: So, what are your next steps with Selenixor in myeloma? And so we could take comments from Aaron about this because it's, you know, sure. I, I want to try to conclude and get final remarks from both of you.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the big thing is that ultimately that. When you look at our experience with, there's t- a lot of lessons learned out of this. And one is that when you look at thalidomide, it started off at 800 milligrams and now we're down to 50 milligrams. Um, you know, even with bortezomib carf- is, you know, twice a week down to once a week, IV to sub Q. And so there's a lot of lessons learned about the right dosing. And what we've done is really accelerated the learnings of how to give selinexor in the past year and a half with low dose once weekly. It's fundamentally changed the side effects. We didn't really get into too much of that, but we've learned a lot about side effect management where now it's at the low dose is fundamentally different and much better tolerated and patients stay on for years. So it's very, very different. So what are we doing next with Selenexer is continuing to learn with our investigators. The only way we've made strides of getting approvals in myeloma and lymphoma and these multiple studies is partnerships with all of our collaborators, learning from them and talking, working together. So As we move forward, we're going to continue to develop Selenexer once weekly in combination with pomalidomide with and with other drugs as well that we're exploring in early clinical trials in multiple combinations and newly diagnosed so we'll continue to do additional phase two and phase three studies we're continuing to partner importantly with our cooperative groups at the nci and ctep we continue to partner with all of our investigators with multiple ists uh, to learn uh, learn how to best dose what was the right indication you know, we're looking in high risk myeloma we're looking at a number of settings and the only way This is a village to get any drug really to improve outcomes and learn how to do things because there's a lot of really smart people out there. And so what we're doing with Selenexer is continuing to really aggressively partner with all of our collaborators. And we have a really robust IST program. We're working with a number of folks to do real-world evidence generation, and we're expanding into and exploring other diseases as well.
0: Aaron, any comments in terms of the progress? I want to try to get final remarks from each one of you. I mean, first of all, I want to preface this by saying that I think we all agree that, you know, there's a lot of imperfect studies, imperfect science, and we had a lot of examples. And despite this, we need to navigate imperfect science to help patients. But um, I'd like to get comments from both of you towards the end in terms of the progress of this drug as an example. And then how do you want to... Any final remarks? I think we've had a very... um, a uh, viable discussion. Uh, there's still some disagreements and that's really the art of dialogue and so forth. Um, uh, Aaron, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, no, and, and as you said, well, first of all, I do appreciate having this discussion and thanks for having us. We have the regulatory approval, but you know the practice changing studies, as you said, are hopefully will be done by the cooperative groups and that will hopefully help me guide and make the decision to better help my patients where or when, or if ever, Selinexor will fit into the treatment uh, for patients with myeloma you know, based off the current data, I'll reiterate what I said. Um, I don't know where to place it other than right now at the very uh, uh, end of treatment.
0: And, yes. and we
1: didn't talk. Yes. I, I don't, I know you don't set drug prices, but, you know, this isn't Gleevec. I think we can all be honest about that. And, you know, $22,000 or whatever it is, you know, what? it well, only in oncology where, you know, if there is a benefit of this drug right now in our current setting, it's not you know, ginormous, you know, it's, it's going to be, I think, relatively minimal. And where do we get away with charging these, these, these astronomical costs? I mean, where is it going to end? You know, if you charge this, you've charged a hundred bucks for this and it had basically no side effects, you wouldn't be hearing me kind of be so passionate about this, but given the price, the minimal benefit or unknown benefit, and it's not the toxicity profile and the supportive care uh, involved with this drug. uh, I just demand a lot more before I'm ready to use it.
0: Any comments on that, uh, Jaden? and then we'd like to conclude?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think that's a whole other
2: discussion, uh, and I, it's a, a fair discussion, an important discussion to have uh, about the cost of drugs in, in the U.S. healthcare system, and I think that's a much broader kind of uh, conversation to take on. Sure. You know, I think what, what's clear is that this drug has benefited patients, and we've talked with multiple investigators, and as opposed to, as folks have actually started to use the drug, Multiple patients have benefited, and I and I sleep soundly at night knowing. And I talk with investigators who've given Selinexor after in multiple lines of therapies in various combinations have benefited from the drug. And we've seen patients live, you know, after an allo transplant, after auto transplants, after BCMA CAR T cells have dramatic benefits. We've heard stories, and I you know, from academic investigators and multiple investigators, patients coming in, getting combination therapy, come off of hospice, going into complete remissions. And when people actually use the drug as opposed to what they read about and take on this, because really this, uh, and when they start actually using it, we get dramatic benefits when we hear about these things. And so I think that we see this time and time again. And so I think the big thing is that we've learned how to give the drug. There is benefit that we've seen. The FDA has approved the drug based on the efficacy they've seen. And patients are benefiting from the drug. And so I think that, you know, obviously some patients don't benefit, some patients have side effects, but patients do benefit. And we, I think we're making important advances and that's where I, I think that we'll continue to make these strides. So I think that we have to learn. And I think at the end of the day, everything we do in oncology, we have to figure things out as we go along. And so I think that's what, you know, the challenge is for you and Aaron and for all of us together is saying, let's use this, let's figure it out because we, nobody's gonna give us the answers. You know, doing drug development's hard. It's not so weak. It's not for the you know, faint hearted. It's not to sit back and be given what we need to do. We have to figure this out. That's what's so hard about drug development. And that's what's so hard about improving outcomes. This is not, you know, what's, what's good worth it in life, you have to work hard for. And that's what we're doing. And we wanna do it together and learn together. As, and that's what I think we
1: have the power to do.
0: Thank you, Jayden. Final words, Aaron?
1: I agree. It, it should be very hard to show, you know, when you're charging twenty thousand dollars a month um, with potentially toxic drugs that can maybe even end patients' life sooner than we think. Um, it should be hard, and it should be the, the burden should be uh, on the drug companies and just, and the FDA to show that it's a benefit before we uh, you know jump the gun too soon. And I agree, it is hard. And I yeah. I, I don't do drugs. Nice development. We've done that. Can,
2: we've done yeah. that with a storm. We've done that with a positive yeah. phase three study. With wow. rigorous, rigorous, rigorous evaluation by the FDA, and
0: kudos to
1: the FDA. Okay, I mean, I if think we don't know, it makes people live longer, and we don't know that it makes people feel better. So, um...
0: well, we are probably at least we we we've started having the dialogue. We'll continue having the dialogue. First of all, I I appreciate you both coming on the show on the healthcare unfiltered. If the epiz- if this episode does not go viral on Twitter or social media, I'm gonna blame it on you because I'm just an amazing host. I mean, it's like impossible. <laughs> So I really uh, thank you. We, for context, for listeners, we are taping this before uh, uh, the end of the year. Uh, it's going to air likely January 5th, 2021, or January 12th. So I want to thank my guests, uh, Dr. Aaron Goodman and Dr. Jatin Shah, and really happy holidays, happy new year, and stay safe and really appreciate you coming on.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for getting for the opportunity and a great discussion. Look forward to continued discussions.
0: Thank you, folks, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. This was really great. This is really fun to have this conversation, have this dialogue. It's really important. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Aaron Goodman and Dr. Jayton Shah, for being on the show and to spend time with me um, uh, today. Uh, Let us know how we're doing. Send me um, a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-N, or an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O, at Outlook.com. I would appreciate hearing from you and learning from you how you think I'm doing. I look forward to any feedback you can provide. Don't forget to refer a colleague, don't don't forget to subscribe, rate the show, write a review. I'm very grateful for your loyalty and for everything that you are supporting me with. So very much appreciated. I'm gonna leave you though with a final uh, saying from Isaac Newton, to every action there is always opposed an equal reaction until next time take care